Well, we're looking at John 17 in topical fashion now. We're covering every single word in this chapter in the 14-message series, but we're doing so by highlighting the emphases which Jesus has in his repetition of many themes. And all of these themes can be used to very effectively prove that the believer in Christ can have what we're calling, not very originally, but we're calling blessed assurance. Blessed assurance that Jesus is mine, that my salvation will not fail, that in my final moments I can be assured that God will get me all the way to heaven. And, and so using John 17, we've pointed out that rather than trying to rely on unreliable subjective evidence for our assurance, wishy-washy evidence such as emotion or an historical experience that happened one time, Instead, we rely on objective evidence, divine evidence that's outside of ourselves and dependent not on our faithfulness, but on God's faithfulness. And so I feel like we're gaining a little steam now. Here's the evidence we presented so far. You can have blessed assurance because of the Father's glory. First of all, that you're assured of the permanence of your salvation because your salvation is about glorifying God. It's about showing off, we said, his holiness, his righteousness, his mercy, his love, his justice, his power. Therefore, because God will not fail to receive that glory, he will not fail to save you. We also saw that you can have blessed assurance because of the son's glory. And we did that this morning. That because of his faithful death on the cross, the son of God has received from his father a kingdom. And that kingdom will be filled with kingdom citizens to whom Christ desires to to show his glory. And this group of kingdom citizens we said this morning is not a potential group, it's an actual group of which you as a believer in Christ are a permanent part. And so we're going to gain a little more steam tonight and we want to look at blessed assurance that you can have. And our evidence tonight is because of the Father's plan or because of the Father's sovereign plan, because of the Father's sovereignty. Now, I want to make a clear distinction right now because our next message, Sunday morning, will focus attention on God's sovereign plan for you. We're calling that the Father's choice. But tonight is all about God's sovereign plan for Christ in the work of salvation. So we're going to make a distinction between those two. It's not just God's sovereign plan. Next week is God's sovereign plan for you. Tonight is God's sovereign plan for Christ. The redemptive plan of God didn't start with God's plan for you. It started with God's plan for his son. And this is very clear from Jesus' prayer. Verse 4, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. There was clearly a plan from God the Father for God the Son to carry out. This in no way at all diminishes the deity of Christ or the equality of Christ with God the Father, it simply expresses the unique functions with which the different members of the triune God carry out their roles. And you could look at Ephesians 1, for example, to see the differing functions of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in salvation. It has nothing to say about their equality. They're always equal, but everything to say about how they function. And so there was clearly a plan from God the Father for God the Son to carry out. Verse 7, again, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Now, right here, Jesus is speaking specifically of the 11 disciples. That He says, they know that everything you've given me is, is from you. Everything the Father has given Christ is from the Father. And immediately, we can see two things given to Jesus from the Father First of all, the very next verse, verse 8, for they have, I have given them the words that you gave me. And so the Father gave Jesus the words to proclaim. And the other thing that the Father gave the Son in verse 2, since you have given them authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, God gave Jesus people to save. And so he gave him words to proclaim and people to save, a specific people to save. And we might skip ahead also to verse 18. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world. 
The coming of Christ is the outworking of the Father's sovereign plan, which is summarized in John 3.16. Very familiar to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Does that sound like it was spontaneous? There's no spontaneity with that. It was a plan that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So there was clearly a plan from eternity past for Jesus Christ. Now, our beloved covenant theology brothers have labeled this plan the covenant of redemption. This is a label going all the way back to the Reformation. I'm not a big fan of that label, and I'll tell you a couple of reasons for that. First of all, the Bible clearly labels all of the important covenants in Scripture, and that's not one of them. It's not there. Another reason I'm not a fan of that label is that in the Bible, every major covenant deals with a superior party, that is God, and an inferior party, that is humanity. And I'm not comfortable with making the plan of God the Father for the Son fit the idea of a covenant in making God the Father superior to the Son. I'm not comfortable with that. Another reason I'm not comfortable with that label is that every major covenant in the Bible is made in blood. There is no blood shed in this agreement. And some might say, well, the blood was shed at the cross. That's not the blood of the covenant of redemption. That is the blood of the new covenant. Very clear in 1 Corinthians 11. And so I'm not a big fan of that label. That being said, if we can put that aside for a moment, they are exactly correct and we would align with them that clearly there was a plan long prior to creation and what's so important to remember here is that God never improvises. He, he never makes things up as he goes along. The plan from eternity past included full knowledge that Satan would introduce sin into the creation and that God would then redeem mankind and creation itself from that sin. And so what would happen then as a result of the Father's sovereign plan and the Son's complete obedient submission to that plan, not as a subordinate, but as an equal in voluntary submission to his father. Well, we said some of this this morning, but the son of God would temporarily lay aside the full expression of his attributes and his glory without ever laying aside his deity. It's not possible anyway. He would obey his father completely in all things as a sinless human being, including obeying his parents. God would give the Spirit without measure for the empowerment of Jesus' ministry as a, as a human being. God would deliver Jesus from death and exalt him. Remember, Jesus agreed to this deal, believing that he would die and be raised from the dead, trusting his Father completely. God the Father would send the Holy Spirit to whomever Jesus willed to send him. All that come to the Father would come through Christ and none would be lost and God would form a purified church for his son and all believers of all the ages would then form the messianic kingdom in fact isaiah 53 11 and 12 prophetically speaks of the satisfaction and the reward of christ after his death meaning by the way isaiah 53 teaches the resurrection of christ also but here's the satisfaction and reward from isaiah 53 beginning in verse 11 Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And so the soul of Christ will be satisfied and rewarded because he carried out the Father's plan to its full extent. And as we mentioned extensively this morning, the ultimate result of this glorious plan is the glorification of Christ. That's the point of the redemptive plan of God. The redemptive plan of God is not aimed purely at us. It's aimed first for the benefit of Christ and we are the beneficiaries of that. And we see this glorification in Revelation 11 and then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb, here's why, who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and what? And glory and blessing. 
And so the outworking of Christ's obedience will be that he receives glory. And so this evening, to show you that you can have blessed assurance because of the Father's sovereignty, because of the Father's plan, because of his plan for Christ, what we're going to do is a good old-fashioned Bible study outline. I want to give you four progressions of the Father's sovereign plan for Christ. Four progressions of the Father's sovereign plan for Christ. And so we'll do this in old-style Bible study style. First progression, the Father's plan introduced. The Father's plan introduced. And as we did this morning, we're going to take a short tour of our Bible. So we're going to turn all the way to the other end to Genesis chapter 3. If you would turn with me to Genesis 3, and I know you're trying to take notes I trust your skill. You can turn in your Bibles and write at the same time. In Genesis 3, we see the entrance of sin into the world. Satan has already rebelled against God, and now Satan comes into the Garden of Eden in the form of a serpent. Revelation 12, verse 9, calls Satan that ancient serpent. Both Adam and Eve fall for his lies, and they Desecrate the temple of God on earth, that is the Garden of Eden, by disobeying God's command to not eat of the tree of knowledge. And so God confronted Adam, and God confronted Eve, who now, in their sin, each made excuses. Adam blamed his wife, and Eve blamed the serpent. And so God issues a curse to the serpent, and then to Eve, and then to Adam. But we'll just consider two verses. Verse 14 of Genesis 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." Now, verse 15, we see what came to be known from the time of the early church fathers. Justin Martyr and Irenaeus gave a label to this in Latin as the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. That this is the first instance of the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of our Bible. And we could know the several important features of this introduction to the Father's plan. The first feature is, and this is interesting, the gospel is introduced into creation as a sentence passed on God's enemy. It's a judgment. It's a sentence passed on God's enemy. And this is so important because it it tells us from the outset that the gospel is about God's dominion, God's power, God's control, God's sovereignty, long before it's about mankind's need. It's all about Him. It's all about His dominion. And so the gospel is introduced as a death sentence on God's enemy. Another feature we could notice is that we have a perpetual reminder of the fall. We have a perpetual reminder of the fall. We don't get any explanation about this, but apparently there was some sort of physiological difference that now happens to the family of serpents, to snakes. The snake, which now crawls and eats dust, we could call this sort of the anti-rainbow because this is a reminder of sin and the need for the grace of God. Every time, if you have a pet snake, that's great, and it's one of God's creatures, but it's crawling on its belly to remind you of the curse. Another feature we could notice is that God will first put enmity between Satan and the woman. First, there's enmity between Satan and the woman. Sometimes this is explained as the reason most women don't like snakes. A, that's not very theological, and B, most men don't like snakes either. I've seen men scream like little girls when the snake goes across the sidewalk. More importantly, though, and I think more relevantly, Satan and the woman should be seen as representatives of their respective families. Eve, the mother of all mankind against whom Satan continues to make war even today, And Satan, the leader of all the demons who followed him into rebellion against God, and the leader of all humanity who will not turn to Christ, the Apostle John calls them children of the devil. In the Gospels, 
We saw this war lived out in the tremendous amount of demonic possession happening in the time of Christ. And so there's enmity. It's a word that literally means hostility to the point of war between all who come from the woman and all who come from Satan. When did this battle really commence? The very next chapter in Genesis, Genesis 4. You have Cain, really a son of Satan. And you have Abel, the son of Eve. And Cain murders righteous Abel. And we're off to the races at war. And so God will first put enmity between Satan, the family of Satan, and the woman, the family of the woman. But then we could also notice that there will be enmity, hostility, war, between Satan's offspring and her offspring. And these are, these are singular. We're, we're less clear about who Satan's offspring is, and this is probably more poetic as a way to make a clear, uh, a clear comparison here. Satan's offspring could be those involved with the crucifixion of Christ, or it could simply be Satan himself. But we're very clear on her offspring, who Eve's offspring is. It's singular, one man. And so Satan will bruise the heel of this one man, a wound from which he would recover, but the one man would bruise the head of Satan, a mortal blow which will finish Satan as an active rebel against God. And this is a great word picture. This is consistent with what happens when a snake goes up against a man. Because if you're walking along and a snake bites you on the heel, what do you do? You crush it. And so the snake might get the first shot, but the man will get the last one. And of course, what is this speaking of? This is Christ's victory over Satan at the cross and in his resurrection, thwarting Satan's plan to stay at war with mankind. And of course, we benefit from this great victory. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-seven, the Apostle Paul says, but thanks be the God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the Father's plan for Christ introduced. Let's stay with our old style Bible study outline here and Now let's consider the Father's plan predicted. The Father's plan predicted. Let's go back to the New Testament and go with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, and I know this is familiar to you, but it's it's important to put our eyes on this and put ourselves in this situation. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he joins two of his followers on the road to the village of Emmaus. It's about seven miles or so from Jerusalem, so they have a few minutes to walk and to talk together. And these two men, in God's sovereign plan, do not recognize Jesus. And what they're talking about is the fact that they're, they're, they're dumbfounded about the fact that the body of Jesus is missing from the tomb. And they don't know why. And in Luke 24, beginning in verse 25, And he, that is Christ, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, we have to stop right there. What does that tell us? That tells us that it was a reasonable expectation for somebody who has read the Old Testament to see Messiah everywhere, to see Christ everywhere in the Old Testament. This is not something that you had to be a significant Bible student to do. You read it, and you saw him there. Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This would be the greatest Old Testament sermon ever preached, and it's not recorded. That kills me. I would love to have heard this. But in about a seven-mile walk, Jesus gives an overview of, of all the prophecies concerning himself. Theologian by the name of J. Barton Payne listed 574 verses in the Old Testament that have direct personal messianic predictions, several hundred others that have what's called typology or some indirect references to Messiah. Alfred Edersheim found 558 different pre-Christian rabbinic writings, writings by rabbis, which identified 456 separate Old Testament passages used to refer to Messiah. In other words, Messiah is everywhere. The eminent Dr. Walt Kaiser highlighted 65 of the most direct messianic predictions in the Old Testament. And I'll just give you a few. Our Luke passage here says that Jesus started with Moses, with the Torah, with the Pentateuch. 
Now, we just saw Genesis 3.15. We'll just stick with Moses for a minute. How about Genesis 9.27? This is the blessing of Noah on his sons. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. What is this? This is Jesus Christ, the descendant of Shem, taking in under, the, under his tent those descended from Japheth. Who's descended from Japheth? Look around. It's us. How about Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, the, the Abrahamic covenant. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It is through the descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ, that every family of the earth may be blessed. We get even more specific. How about Jacob's prophecy concerning his son Judah? Genesis 49, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched down as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares arouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Plural, all nations. Jesus, the Lion of Judah, is the fulfillment of that prophecy. How about even an unbeliever being forced to speak the truth at the behest of God? Numbers 24, beginning in verse 15. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. This is the idea of an unbeliever having his eyes forced open by God to see a vision of what is coming. And here's what he sees. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. How about Moses? He was to tell Israel in Deuteronomy 18 that they're to look for somebody besides him. Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. Did you catch that? What did Jesus say in John 17 to his father? I, you've given them the words you gave me, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. That's just in Moses. Time doesn't permit a full survey, but suffice to say that Christ is predicted in Job, First and Second Samuel, First Chronicles, numerous Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Micah, Zechariah, Malachi, and others. No wonder Jesus said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So, in the Father's plan introduced, God says that Christ is coming. And in the Father's plan predicted, God says that Christ is still coming over and over and over and over again. And so now I'd like to pick just one of those predictions and I'd like to show you the Father's plan detailed. The Father's plan detailed. So let's go back to the Old Testament to Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, the prophet Daniel in exile with his countrymen, and we're going to be here for a few minutes, in exile with his countrymen in Babylon. Babylon's now controlled by the Medo-Persians after the takeover outlined in Daniel chapter 5. And Daniel has read the prophet Isaiah chapter 25, verse 12 in our Bibles. And he's read in the prophet Isaiah that the time of exile is to be 70 years. And when Daniel reads this, the exile is in the vicinity of 67 years or so by then. And so Daniel immediately responds to the word of God, offering to the Lord prayer and pleas for mercy in mourning and in sorrow over Israel's sin that led them into captivity in the first place. And in one of the greatest prayers in all the Bible, Daniel pleads with God to keep his everlasting covenant with Israel, to, to keep his promises. Daniel chapter 9, verse 19 he ends his prayer, O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not 
For your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And surprise, instant answer. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. In Daniel's prayer, his chief concern was Israel's immediate condition. The angel Gabriel comes and gives Daniel the answer he really needs, an answer about Israel's far future. And intertwined, obviously, with Israel's future are details about Christ Jesus. And he begins in verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So he starts off with the famous 70 weeks of Daniel. Literally 77s, and this is speaking of years, 490 years total. And you'll notice the focus, your people and your holy city. So this is a very Israel-focused message coming from Gabriel. And within this 40, 490 years, just here in verse 24, there are six major events that are prophesied. Six of them. The first major event Finishing the transgression, bringing Israel to the point of concluding her discipline. And this could be the temporary answer that Daniel was looking for, that God would indeed bring his people out of captivity. But Gabriel is clearly speaking of something far beyond that temporary fulfillment. And the next major event lets us know this. Not only is he finishing the transgression, but the second major event is putting an end to sin. And that certainly can't be speaking of the coming release of the Jews from captivity because that didn't end sin. As a matter of fact, Israel's sin would be on the rise very shortly after the remnant returned from exile. And so this 490 years is speaking of something bigger, much bigger, a plan which involves a, a, an absolutely new spiritual situation altogether. It's the third major event in verse 24, atoning for iniquity. And now this starts to sound familiar. This sounds New Testament language to us, doesn't it? The finishing transgression and the ending of sin is accomplished by atonement, by the paying the price for sin. And of course, this ultimate ending of sin happens at the cross of Christ, whereby the believer in Christ may finish transgression, put an end to sin, and receive the benefit of forgiveness because of the atoning work of Christ. And that will ultimately be consummated when we see Christ. Yes, we are saved now, but our salvation isn't completed because we still sin. And so the salvation will be consummated when we see him at the end. And then in this 490 years, we see a fourth major event, the coming of everlasting righteousness. This is accomplished at the cross first. It was also predicted in Jeremiah 23, beginning in verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. And so the coming of everlasting righteousness is very strongly associated with the coming of Jesus Christ himself, the righteous branch descended from King David. There's a fifth event, the sealing of vision and prophet. The sealing of vision and prophet. Now, after having received more visions of the future, Daniel receives instructions in chapter 12, verse 4, He's told, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. In other words, what I'm about to tell you needs to be sealed for a while. But that's not what Gabriel is saying here. He's speaking of the impact of Messiah coming. Transgression will be ended. Sin will be ended. Atonement has been accomplished. The righteous one has arrived. Now, 
We have to do a little side note here. Joel 2.28 does speak of a coming day when dreams and visions from God will return. But in the context of Joel 2, that's right before the return of Christ. But when Messiah returns for the final time, it seems that visions and prophets will be outdated as the means by which God communicates to his people. Why? Because Jesus is right there. When Jesus was on earth for the first time, his disciples didn't ask God for a divine word. They just said, hey, Jesus, I have a question for you. They just asked him directly. And so he'll seal up both vision and prophet. And there's one more major event, anointing the most holy place. Anointing the most holy place. This is a clear reference to the temple. The most holy place is the innermost room of the temple in which the glory of God dwelt. And if you're familiar with Ezekiel 40 through 48, you get a massively detailed description of the coming new temple in Jerusalem, which will be built when Christ comes to reign on earth. That description is so detailed, you can literally make blueprints from it. And perhaps the culminating feature of the temple is the return of God's glory. Ezekiel 43 records, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city and just like the vision that I had by the Kibar Channel and Canal and I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So all of these major events, finishing the transgression, putting an end to sin, atoning for iniquity, the coming of everlasting righteousness, the sealing of vision and prophet, and anointing the most holy place, all of them find their ultimate fulfillment at or around the second coming of Christ. Now, the question is, when did these 77s begin Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So now we have to do a little digging, a little investigating. Some have placed the beginning of this 490 years, just a few years from this text, the decree of the Persian king Cyrus in 538 B.C. to go and rebuild the temple of Jerusalem. But we have to remember that the Jews didn't come back all at once. In fact, not too many of them returned at all. There's a very, very small remnant overall. But those who did return didn't go in one group. They went back over many, many decades. In fact, there was such a a length of time between some of the returns of exiles that some of the enemies of Israel questioned even whether Cyrus had even ever given such a decree. And so in Ezra chapter 6, Darius the king over the province of Babylonia, he made a search and in the province of Media in the city of Ecbatana, a scroll was found and they dug this scroll out and they unrolled it and it has the decree of Cyrus. And so during then the reign of Artaxerxes of Persia, Ezra was sent with another group of Jews, this is many decades after the original decree, to bring many of the captured temple items all the way back to Jerusalem and to be the spiritual leader of those now settling what was left of Jerusalem. But they they continued to have troubles, they continued to have difficulties because all of the little countries all around them did not want Israel back as a nation. And so they continued to be be besieged by difficulty and trouble. And so because of that, a final decree was now given by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah, the cupbearer for Artaxerxes, that he should go rebuild the city and the walls of the city for the stability and safety of Jerusalem. And that decree is the only one that fits with Daniel 9.25 to build and restore Jerusalem. Now, why is that important? Because that decree happens precisely either the last month of 445 B.C. or the first month of 444. We have a 30-day window. That is huge. That is a, a, a pinpoint accurate understanding of when that decree happened. Because with that decree, we can now do some figuring that with the Hebrew calendar of 12 
30-day months, 360 days total. And here in verse 25, we have seven weeks of years, that's 49 years, 62 weeks of years, that's 434 years, for a total of 483 years from this decree that puts us right at 33 A.D. Now, some scholars have calculated this time to the day and the place to the exact day as the day Jesus Christ rode the donkey to Jerusalem in preparation for his death. Now, the math might have a couple of small variations, but there is massive evidence that the 69 weeks, the 483 years, places us directly at the death of Christ. This is the coming of an anointed one. That's the term for a king. Here he's called a prince. Who is a prince? He's the son of the king. But you notice that verse 25 divided the 69 weeks into two sections. The first seven weeks of years, 49 years, Jerusalem is now said to have been built again, quote, with squares and moat. That means streets and a ditch is what that means. What that means is as part of the repaired city wall, which Nehemiah took charge of, that there was probably also some ditches dug. And also, Nehemiah 11 verse 1 says that one in ten men were assigned now to live in Jerusalem. And you might think, oh, that's, that, that's a great thing to live in Jerusalem. It wasn't a great thing because there wasn't a Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a pile of rubble from the destruction in 586. The rest of the men would live in the outlying towns. Now, what were these one in 10 men to do? It was their task to do what ancient peoples did, that when their city was knocked over by enemies, they didn't clear the rubble. They just kind of spread it all out and smoothed it out and brought dirt in and built something on top of it. And so that was their job. How long did it take to do that? It took 49 years to accomplish that. The first seven sevens. The second section, the 62 weeks of years, are said at the very end of verse 25 to be what? A troubled time. Was this a troubled time from the time Jerusalem was rebuilt to the end of the 483 years? Well, you tell me. There were no prophetic words from God for 400 years. Israel is still under the control of the Persian Empire. Then Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire, bringing Greek rule to the world and Alexander required that Greek culture and language be promoted in every land he conquered. After Alexander died, his empire was divided among his generals and eventually a Seleucid king named Antiochus Epiphanes ruled Palestine. And around 167 BC or so, he overthrew the Jewish priesthood, desecrated the temple, brought in a pagan altar and sacrificed unclean animals right in the Holy of Holies. And eventually a revolt broke out under Judas Maccabeus and there was a civil war, there was violence and finally restored the priesthood in the temple. And about the time things were settling down, 63 BC, Rome conquered the area and put all of what they called the province of Judea under control of the Caesars. Herod was made the king of Judea as a client king who ultimately served Rome. So yes, this was a troubled time. And as we've already hinted at, at the end of the seven, then the 62 weeks, 483 years, something happens to the anointed prince. Verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And so the anointed one will be cut off. You may recall from our study of the Pentateuch that being cut off from your people is a euphemism for being put to death. And here the anointed prince is put to death, Jesus Christ at the cross. But now a different prince is mentioned. More importantly, the people of the prince who is to come. And these people will destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple. There's only one time this has ever happened again. And that can only be the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. 
But this demonstrates something really, really key for us here about timing. You notice that after the cutting off of the appointed prince, the anointed prince, and the destruction of Jerusalem, both are said to happen after the 69 weeks, after the 483 years. But verse 27 says that after those events, this prince who is to come will make a strong covenant. What does that tell us? It tells us that between the 69th and the 70th week of years, there is a gap. Why does Daniel, or why does Gabriel here tell Daniel, that why didn't he just use numbers? 483 years. Why doesn't he do that? Why does he say 70 weeks instead than seven weeks, 62 weeks? Because now we can put together the puzzle that at the end of the 69th week, prophetic time stops, so to speak. There is a gap. This is why it's the people of the prince who is to come, not the evil prince himself who carries out the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Who are the people of the prince who is to come? The people are the Romans. Those are the ones who destroyed Jerusalem. Jesus predicted this on his way to the cross. He told the daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves because of what's coming. But who is the prince? The prince is one who comes later. Did you notice something here? All of a sudden, beginning in verse 27, we're transported to a time in which the temple does exist. Once again, because this prince has made a covenant with Israel, a seven-year covenant, the 70th week begins. And in this covenant, he has apparently restored temple sacrifices But after half the week, three and a half years, he breaks covenant, does away with the sacrifices, turns on Israel and on those who perhaps thought he was Messiah come to earth or Christ in Greek. More accurately, what he is called in the New Testament is the Antichrist. An Antichrist will desecrate the temple much like Antiochus Epiphanes did and he'll set himself up to be worshipped called by Daniel here the abomination that makes desolate, or in older English translations, the abomination of desolation. In fact, Revelation 13 tells us that in some fashion, Antichrist will appear to die and be resurrected in mock imitation of Christ himself. And Antichrist will have a false prophet Revelation 13, beginning in verse 11, says that the false prophet will perform great signs, even making fire come down from heaven in front of people. Antichrist will have an image made of himself to be worshipped, and his false prophet, called in Revelation the second beast, was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast, that is Antichrist, to be slain. You remember how all through the Bible, we, the Bible makes fun of idols, that they're made of stone and they're made of wood and they're deaf and they're mute and they can't do anything for the first time ever. An idol will speak by the power of Satan. And now all humanity will have a choice. Worship Antichrist or pay dire consequences up to and including death. And in fact, Jesus confirms that this second half of the 70th week of years, this three and a half year point, will be the greatest time of trial in the history of the world. Sometimes those of us who are dispensational in theological leanings are accused of making up names. One of the names we're accused of making up is the Great Tribulation just comes from Jesus. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 15, he says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Some would say, well, that's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. There's been much worse things since then. This must be something that has not happened yet. And in the very next verse in Matthew 24, Jesus says that in God's mercy, those days will be cut short. There are only 42 months, 
three and a half years, and how will they be cut short? Well, he continues. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And we read this morning Revelation 19 picturing this invasion of earth by Jesus Christ as riding a white horse of victory with his armies of heaven. In Revelation 19, verse 19 says, I saw the beast, that is Antichrist, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who was in his presence, in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is a disgusting picture of vultures eating the flesh of God's defeated enemies. By the way, Jesus already warned of that day. He said in Matthew twenty four twenty seven, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And here's the sign, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And Zechariah fourteen nine tells us the outcome of that day, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. What does it say in Daniel at the very end of twenty seven, verse twenty seven? until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator, on Antichrist. So there we have the Father's plan introduced, the Father's plan predicted, the Father's plan detailed. And so finally, we can think back to John 17. You don't need to turn there, but I want to talk to you about the Father's plan fulfilled. The Father's plan fulfilled in this Takes us back to our thoughts in John 17. Jesus begins his prayer. Father, the hour has come. This is not a random hour. This is not a spontaneous hour. This is not a fly by the seat of your pants hour. This is a specific moment in time. That the plan of the Father from the ages past and from before time is now happening. This is exactly what Paul proclaimed when he said in Galatians 4 verse 4. But when the fullness of time, the same thing as the hour has come, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. These are two very important phrases. Jesus was born of woman. What does that fulfill? That fulfills the introduction to the gospel plan all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And he's born under the law, fulfilling the prophecies that Christ would be descended from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah, and from David, that he is an Israelite, just as even Balaam was forced with his eyes open to see the glory of Christ, to say that a king will rise from Israel. Now, you've been very patient, and you've waited. What does the Father's sovereign plan for his Son have to do with your assurance of salvation? The father has an intricate plan for his son and that plan is going to culminate in the saving of countless millions of kingdom citizens. If you don't make it to heaven, then the father's sovereign plan for the son, for Christ, fails and Satan wins. And so if God can proclaim to Satan his coming defeat all the way back in the Garden of Eden, and if God can for century after century after century proclaim that his son is coming and do so with astronomically impossible precision and detail, and if God can make this plan for Christ come to earth, happen at the precise moment, at the appointed hour that he's planned, and if God can tell us in the book of Daniel to the day when the ministry of Christ would culminate at the cross, if God can make that happen in the fullness of time, then for you to wonder, I hope God can keep me saved, is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Because the rest of this very important Galatians 4 passage assures us 
that God's sovereign plan for Christ gives us tremendous confidence in our own salvation. Listen to the rest of this text. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. That's God's plan for Christ. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because, present tense, you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, present tense, you are no longer a slave, present tense, but a son. And if a son, present tense, then an heir through God. Listen, it's very simple. The Father's sovereign plan for Christ will happen and you will be there because that's part of his plan. It is really that simple. And on that day when you were close to closing your eyes for the last time, maybe your thoughts might turn not so much to the Father's plan for you, but to the Father's plan for Christ and how you hang on to him. And you will be, as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, wherever he is. That is great comfort, and I hope you find as much comfort as I have in that truth. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you because of Christ that we can have this assurance. We thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you for your plan for Jesus Christ, which includes us. And while we are the beneficiaries of salvation, we were not the focus of the plan of salvation. Christ is the focus. Your glory is the focus. His glory is the focus. Your sovereignty is the focus. Your character, your integrity is the focus. Because we ultimately serve one glorious purpose, and that is to shine and reflect the glory of God back to you so that you might be honored. Lord, I pray for a man or a woman here who secretly is struggling with assurance, who is living in fear each day, that their salvation is in danger somehow, that somehow perhaps their sin would overwhelm the cross. I pray for their assurance, Lord, that they would sleep in peace, that they would be like King David proclaimed in Psalm 4, verse 8, I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. And we would pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.